0: Welcome to Thinking Sheep, a podcast that probes the riches and complexities of life. Thinking Sheep podcast. Think as you need. Think harder as you, follow, as you follow. As you follow. As you follow. Welcome to the Thinking Sheep podcast. Today we're going to talk about jazz. Yes, jazz, America's only original art form, an art form that has so much to say about American history, about democracy, and on a much deeper level, African-American history. Joining us in our conversation today is Dr. Ron McCurdy. Dr. McCurdy is professor of music at the University of Southern California's Thornton School of Music, and he's also the former director of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. Dr. McCurdy, how are you doing today? Very happy, Skip. Good to see you as well, man. Yeah, we're going to jump right in. Um, tell us your story about how you fell in love with jazz music and what led mm. you to become a jazz educator.
1: Oh, that's a that's a, that's a a wonderful question. I grew up in a home with uh, two educated parents. My father was a high school principal and my mother was taught third grade. And my father was a, an avid listener and, and part-time amateur trumpet player. So he had a very eclectic record collection. So as a kid growing up, I heard everything from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to Duke Ellington to Box B Minor Mass to Stravinsky to Ella Fitzgerald to Sarah Vaughn to the Sons of the Pioneers. You name it, I heard it. So all that music was was on my hard drive. And uh, But my my, my my all through high school and even my undergrad college was primarily focused on classical trumpet playing. And I did the arbons and the Charlier and the all the Chacon books and all the Clark studies and all the things that you would do as a classical player. And it wasn't until I got to grad school that I had begun to really try to make a real serious effort to learn how to play jazz. Uh, And that came out of necessity. My parents had always taught us to find ways to make yourself useful. And uh, when I got to the university of Kansas for grad school, um, the program there, I mean, the, the music program was was thriving, but they had very little to do with jazz performance. And I really didn't know much about jazz myself. I was sort of a, a novice at best, but I but I had heard it, and I could, you know, I, I would you know, try to play some of the songs that on my home that I had heard on records before. But I was not a very serious jazz player by any shape of the imagination. And so it was it was that. Trying to find a way to make myself useful while being in grad school at Kansas, and also uh, I met David Baker, who became my my mentor when I was about 23 years old. He was he came as a as a guest speaker, for the classical department, and I'd never seen up close and in person an African American educator who was so brilliant, who was he was an intellect, he was a composer, he's playing cello, and he just had this wonderful inviting personality, and I just I saw that, and I thought, I thought to myself, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. So it was that confluence of putting myself in a position to uh, to start a jazz studies program at the University of Kansas, meeting David Baker, and then uh, having had, having grown up in a home where my father would get up every morning and play records starting at around 5:30. So you can see where I get up. My getting up early comes comes to me naturally because my father was an early riser. So I just I followed in his, in his footsteps in that in that regard. But that's kind of my, in a nutshell, that's kind of my story. And uh, the educational thing, like I said, David Baker was a professor at, at Indiana University. And uh, he just had to, he seemingly, he seemingly had the best of both worlds. He could teach, he could play, he could do lectures, he could tour. I mean, he did all the things that I, that I'm doing right now.
0: Uh, that I was just taken by, and I, and I wanted to sort of pattern my life after his model because I just, I loved what he was doing. Oh, yeah, the great David Baker. It's hard to think where jazz education would be today without him. Well, speaking of the name jazz, um, talk to the listeners about exactly what jazz is. Um, I believe most people today, when they hear that word, they automatically think of smooth jazz, which to me is more um instrumental r&b instrumental pop but when we hear that word jazz exactly what is
1: it well that's a bro, that's a that's a that's a loaded question
0: <laughs> when,
1: you know, jazz jazz the word jazz except can mean a lot of different things but for me the essence of jazz is the highest level of democracy where a group of people come together who embrace the notion of swing and the blues and improvisation, and they were able to do those things uh, in, in concert with one another. Uh, we know that, looking at without getting too deep into history, we know that first generation of, of jazz musicians that we call them, the Ellingtons, the uh, Billy Eckstines, the uh, Cap Calloway, Louis Armstrong, they were coming off the heels of, of minstrelsy. So a lot of what they were presenting initially was to provide entertainment primarily for a white audience, you know. And that second generation, the Thelonious Monks, the Dizzy Gillespie's, the Charlie Parkers, the Bud Powells, they were more uh, in an artistic mindset where they were playing with, where the music became more of a connoisseur's art where they were playing for each other and not necessarily for people to dance to or you know, to be entertained, per se. I mean, I think I think they want people to appreciate their music, but it was a different uh, slant than what they had for those who were playing at the Savoy Ballroom or, you know, or or, or 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 the Roseland Ballroom for people to dance to. So when we think about jazz, it's a little esoteric. And certainly when we think about the next, what came out of The Swinger, which was bebop, uh, we're looking at a, a much more esoteric, Genre of music that requires a little more sophistication from the audience, a little more involved by the audience. It, it, I mean, the beat is still there, the groove is still there, but it's a little more disguised. And it's a higher level of, of intellectual engagement on the part of the musicians, and it requires that same thing from the audience. So, smooth jazz, or, you know, we, we know that that's nothing new. We can think about what was called jump swing by artists such as uh, Louis Jordan, who was a very capable jazz musician, but he chose to go into a route that would be more amenable and more acceptable to a vast, to a wider audience. He, he did tunes like Caledonia, you know, What Makes Your Big Head So Hard, and I mean, all those kinds of comedic songs that, were, that was more catered toward uh, uh, appealing to the masses. So people have always had to find ways that would be find genres of music that would be more appealing. But jazz music at its core is the idea of taking a risk. Putting yourself out there, trying new things, uh, listening to one another, and and as as I said earlier, uh, dealing with that whole high level of democracy where every voice matters.
0: Absolutely. Well, jazz is America's only original art form. But to me, you know, one could argue that it doesn't get the respect that it should, like say like a European classical music. Why doesn't it get the respect?
1: We have to look at history, and we know the the primary progenitors of this music were of African descent. And we know that the journey that African Americans have experienced now for 401 years of uh, being considered less than, Uh, it's only natural that their music would be considered less than. Even though it is now world music. I mean, we know that jazz music is played and respected and loved throughout the world. In some cases, more so than our own country does. So uh, I think we have to look at, you know, for example, after World War II, when many of the GIs were coming back and insisting on having jazz in in, in the higher education, and we know that the you know, one of the first places that it, that it happened was at the University of North Texas, or North Texas State, I think it was called at that time, uh, uh, how there was all kind of hoops that had to be jumped through. They had, they, re, they referred to the ensembles as being lab bands to give it that kind of academic slant, you know, tantamount to what would happen in a science laboratory. So in order for it to be considered to be a legitimate class, and even still, there was a certain... Sanitization of the music that was trying to uh, uh, leave out African Americans' involvement, and we see that even now. Some days. I mean, I've, I've I've gone to some programs where they talk more about Big Spiderbank than they do about Louis Armstrong, mm. or more about Benny Goodman than they talk about Duke Ellington. You know, so we understand that, but from a, but from a, from a social and political standpoint, I think it comes from the fact that African Americans were the progenitors of this music. And I know in higher education, most deans when I when I when I got to Kansas, before I, before I got to Kansas, I learned that there was a dean who would walk, you know, throughout throughout the practice rooms. And if you heard people playing flat thirds and anything that sounded like jazz, you were asked to leave the practice room. And if you were caught doing it again, you'd have your you'd have your scholarship confiscated. I mean, so it, it was more of a of a social political uh uh, slant that kept this music, I think, in a, in a position because it was associated with African Americans, whom themselves were not deemed as as complete human beings. They were looked upon as, you know, as you know, three fifths of a of a person, and yeah. their right and, and 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 their existence was not respected.
0: Right. Well, with that being said, what does jazz teach us about the African American experience as a whole?
1: Well, I think jazz.
0: Jazz music is is a continuation of all black music, and we know that most
1: black music might be considered as protest music. For example, uh, we know the earliest genre that emerged with the uh, with African Americans or Africans we, should, we can't call them we can't call them Americans yet but Africans coming as enslaved people, the spiritual emerged, and the spiritual uh, was part of this whole conversion into Christianity process. And the spiritual was used, A, to praise God, and secondly, to plan escapes. It was a means of communication. And we know uh, that gospel music continued that as well. Certainly blues did. It was protest music. Bebop was certainly protest music. It was, as, as people would say, it was as evolutionary as it was revolutionary. So... It, it, I think it speaks to our resiliency, for one thing, because we had to figure out how to communicate with one another. We know that uh, North America learned much from the West Indies and from South America on how to manage their enslaved Africans. And one of the first things that was taken away, and you'll appreciate this, was the removal of the drums. Drums were, were a means of communication. And, and if you can communicate, then you can plan uprisings. So if you were an enslaved African in North America, you had to learn how to improvise. If you couldn't improvise, uh, you were not going to survive. So I think I think the music is a manifestation of who we are as people, and, and it speaks to our resilience. You know, how resilient we, we've been, that we've been able to improvise and, and survive, and not only survive, but to thrive in a country that did not initially welcome us. And in some instances, still does not welcome us. When, when, when Trump says, I won by a landslide, it was a fraudulent election, we won by a lot. He's right if you just count the black and brown vote. <laughs>
0: <You
1: know? laughs> yes. He's absolutely right. And and, I, and, and and what he's trying to say in a very subliminal way is that how dare these black and brown people think that their vote should matter. We built this country. This is a white man's country. Mm. And we know from a historical standpoint that when the founding fathers crafted the Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men. We're talking about wealthy white men, not poor, not even poor white men, and certainly not women, and certainly not people of color. So, but we as a country, we, we've never, we, we've never really grappled with our original sin, that being uh, chattel slavery. We have not. If you go, if you go to Germany, you will never see any kind of shrines or uh, any kind of monuments paying homage to Adolf Hitler. They got rid of it. So we're not going to do that. We, we, we're going to go in a different direction. America has never done that. We, if, if you go to Richmond, Virginia, right now, you'll find a big statue of Robert E. Lee right there at town square. You know. So that's that. For me, that has been the crux of our of our of our existence, and and have been one of the challenges that we face as as people. Uh, this is what so many people fought and died for to make America embrace its own documents, its own constitution.
0: Well, speaking of racial matters, um, in the 20s and 30s, white America realized that jazz was here to stay. It was on the airwaves. Um, It became very popular in the 1930s. Yet there were some journalists that were writing some very degrading things about jazz. In my research, I found articles entitled um, Unspeakable Jazz Must Go. Um, why jazz sends us back to the jungle. Um, there was another article entitled "The Jazz Problem." Why the hostility? It, it, well, it was it was we were coming off of the Victorian model, where
1: uh, the Victorian model dealt with you know people were looking at as Africans as being savages. You know that was think about the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club itself, it it it, it was reminiscent of of. uh perpetuating a a, a stereotype that portrayed African-Americans being primitive. Think about this. It was Duke Ellington and his jungle band. This is how he was promoted. Mm. But but then again, you had the commercial aspect of it, because just like if if you look at rap music today, the reason why Jay Z and Kanye are so wealthy is not so so much because of African-Americans. They are wealthy because white kids buy their music. Yes. And the same thing is true with with, with with jazz music. Whites began. I mean, there was a huge. I mean, there was a huge demand for this music. The dances that came out of the black community—the shim sham, shimmy, the snake hips, the black bottom—all these dances that were popular emanated from the black community. So there was a there was a commercial aspect to it that uh, that some were embracing. Irving Berlin, who was not really a jazz musician, but well, he began to adopt the word jazz. Uh, Paul Whiteman, who was not really considered a, a, a very innovative jazz artist, embraced the term jazz. Benny Goodman came in made himself the king of swing. I mean, so the, the commercial value made it possible that people began to embrace it, and they had to embrace part of what African Americans were doing. And eventually they would always kind of Financially and, and from an economic standpoint, taken over. We, we we can look at rock and roll and rhythm and blues, particularly rock and in fact, rock and roll and rhythm and blues, kind of the same thing. Some would say that rock and roll was more or less the same as rhythm and blues, but, but performed by white people. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's kind of the same thing. But you look at the covers. You look at Little Richard come out with Tutti Fruity covered by Pat Boone. That that version makes exponentially much more than the original version that, that that Little Richard had done. And we can look at countless examples. We look at uh, 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 Big Mama Thornton's Be Nothing But a Hound Dog, covered by Elvis Presley. His version makes exponentially more. So there was always the economic factor uh, that I think that allowed the music to be uh, accepted uh, to a certain extent. But it was. It was. We love the music, but we hate the progenitors. We like. We hate the originators of this music. We'll take it. We'll take what they've done, and we'll sanitize it, and we'll make it our own. Yes. yes. And, we'll, and we'll and we'll and we'll reap the financial benefits of it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, for someone who wants to get into jazz, wants to get into this music, or learn more about it. Who are some of the groundbreaking jazz musicians in history? You know, those landmark people along the way that the, that were the true innovators and ambassadors. Who would you say?
1: Mm. Well, I think you have to start with Louis Armstrong, mm. uh, from just from a sheer innovative standpoint. Now, Louis Armstrong, you know, between 1925 and 28, he had his Hot 5 and Hot 7 groups, and that was probably his most innovative period. After then, he sort of... Uh, became comfortable into his role as being an entertainer. He didn't push the envelope any further than that, but what he did was so profound. His playing was so amazing. He he was doing things that no one had ever done before. I mean, for vocalists and instrumentalists, in terms of his phrasing, his terms of his uh, his articulations, in terms of him, him expanding the range of the trumpet, no one had ever done that before. I think you have to look also look at Duke Ellington from his compositional standpoint. Duke, again, was someone who started out, you know, as an entertainer, playing for different clubs, for dances. I mean, for him, it was a, it was a means of survival. And as, as, as America's musical taste began to shift, he had to shift himself. He, he, he went through into uh, self-commissions, writing a series of suites. He wrote sacred music, wrote for television, for radio. So I think just by his sheer uh, output of, 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 of uh, material, Makes him someone that people we have to look at. And of course, we have to look at Charlie Parker and Disney Gillespie because they transformed the music in a way that no one could have imagined, which really converted the music more into an art form rather than a vehicle for entertainment. And what they did in terms of the harmonic expansions, phrasing, how we would improvise, how we communicated, that changed the whole trajectory of, of how the music would be played. And we owe a debt of gratitude to them because without them, you, would, you wouldn't you would have, uh, you know, every saxophone player has to bow at the altar of Charlie Parker. Every trumpet player has to bow at the altar of Dizzy Gillespie, which means Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Fats Navarro, Clifford Brown, Miles Davis, all of those individuals, you have to credit them for being innovators that took the music to a whole nother level.
0: Yes, yes. Well, Talking about that evolution of jazz, according to saxophonist Jackie McLean, and I was doing my research and um, um, he talked about the mafia introducing heroin into the inner cities, which had a devastating Mm -hmm. effect on many jazz musicians. Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Paul Chambers, Sonny Rollins, Sonny Clark, Jackie McLean himself, Tina Brooks, Gary Barnes, Lee Lee Morgan, all these guys who Mm -hmm. struggled with drugs. Some survived. Most didn't. It's a lot of those guys that didn't survive. What What do you think? What was the connection there between the drug and the music?
1: I think one of the probably one of the, one of the, 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 uh, the yin and
0: the yang of Charlie
1: Parker was that he was such a genius, but he was a flawed individual in his personal life. And because he was looked upon as a demigod, as an artist, he influenced, in my opinion, so many young artists who looked up to him, their thinking was, wow, Charlie Parker's shooting up and look how great he sounds. So if he's shooting up, maybe if I shoot up, maybe I'll sound that great too. I mean, I know that's a sort of over, oversimplification of it, but I, I have to believe that so many young, impressionable artists looked up to Charlie Parker in a way and they began to emulate all of his patterns, his good and the bad, and uh imagine imagine if he had spent the amount of time honing his craft as he spent hawking his horn or somebody else's horn so he could buy some more drugs. Yes. Imagine that. So I think I mean and and, and this, this this that heroin was it, it was it was kinda like COVID It it didn't discriminate. I mean there were just as many white artists who also succumbed to heroin. Stan Gets. You know, several members of Woody Herman's band, a uh, Rod, uh, Red Rodney, Hank Levy. I mean, there were so many white artists. Uh, Anita O'Day I Maybe mean, we think of a pure white woman. Her went at it, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so, but I think I think a lot of it had to do. It was it was a mystique, you know. It was it was it was, you know, the the mob. And this is why I think history is so important. We know during Prohibition, which was 1920 to 1934, 35, somewhere around there allowed the mob to be involved in, in the sale of, of, of bootleg liquor but once prohibition was abolished they had to find another means to make money because now people could go out and buy a drink legally so even though they still were in business they, they needed to find another way and, and they needed to expand their bottom line and 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 so the black community was just dumping of heroin into the community it, it, it certainly happened and we failed for it I mean, not just jazz musicians. but people of all different walks of life of life found themselves addicted to heroin, and it just happened to be, you know, more illuminated because high-profile people, like many musicians, were being caught up in it. And, and we talk about it now, but, but but there were doctors and lawyers and teachers and business owners and people anybody you can name found themselves addicted to heroin, and it just and it just devastated our community. It really did, and it allowed police. To get into this whole thing, of, you know, we, we, we can look at the whole idea of law and order uh, of being a means of incarcerating black and brown people. That was one of the means. I mean, that was one of the excuses, rather. And, and we look at it right now, even today, with heroin, crack, cocaine, how it was looked upon then as a crime versus opioid addiction as a sickness. So instead of throwing people in jail for we give them help. But in the old period, we threw them in jail with crack Cocaine, throw people, people in jail, mostly black, and, black and brown people. So again, I keep going back to race because that's such an integral uh, reason for why African Americans have have struggled so much. Because we, I mean, from day one, the odds were stacked against us. You know, you you you, you if you hate a person, you're going to hate their culture too. But it was a love hate connection. Love the music, love to dance to it, love to sing it
0: but we hate the people who came up with it. Yeah, well, in addition to drugs, what about the record labels? There were a lot of record companies that made a lot of money off of the genius of black music and black musicians. Um, talk about that. Chess Records, Atlantic Records, they
1: were all stacks Records, they were all Ma and Pa operations. And Chess Records, we know that a lot of immigrants came over who were very opportunistic in finding ways to make a buck. They didn't necessarily have any love for black folks or the music, but they found a way, you know, in the case of, of the Chess Brothers, they started out owning a little juke joint where they would sell alcohol and mm-hmm. play records. And they eventually began to record people. And then when the money started to roll in, they understood that the money in the music business was in the publishing and, own, and owning the masters. If you own the masters in the publishing, it becomes a gift that keeps on giving. If the song is re- re-recorded by somebody else, you still get paid. And and and, and part of the uh, the price for black artists for signing with record labels, they would they would always tell the artists, "Look, we want to sign you, but we will own your masters. We will own the publishing." And this is exactly what happened. And in the case of, of Chess Records, you know, they would give them. It was also called you remember? There was a movie called Cadillac Records. Yes. Mm-hmm. and that movie was about chess chess record label giving people like Money waters instead of paying him his royalties they'd give him a cadillac give him women give him drugs and and i'll tell you that Money waters did file a lawsuit against chess record and won because they, they, they were being duped out of their royalties for years i mean and, and chess had to pay up but a lot of i, I remember talking to uh to uh, Herbie Hancock about this. He told me when he was first getting into the business, his mentor was Donald Byrd. And Blue Look wanted to sign Herbie. And uh Donald Byrd told him said, look when you go in for your meeting, they're gonna they're gonna tell you we want to sign you and we want to keep main control of your of your of your publishing. When they, when they tell you that you politely say thank you, no thank you, and you get up and you walk out of the meeting. And sure enough he goes in for the meeting, Herbie we love you, we want to sign you but we want to keep your your publishing. Herbert said, thank you. No, thank you. I said, okay, okay, we'll sign you. You can keep your publishing. A few years later, he comes up with a tune called Watermelon Man, which we all know and love.
0: Yes.
1: His version with Freddie and others did well, but then all of a sudden, Tito Puente records Watermelon Man. It blows up. Imagine if Blue Note had retained Herbert's publishing rights it would, it, would, it would have only enriched Blue Note. Herbie would have gotten nothing from it. But because that, that one astute business move that he made by retaining his publishing, which is why Herbie Hancock to this day is a multi-millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> he understands the business. And so many artists don't understand the business. They give away their publishing. You know, Prince got caught up in that for a while. Michael Jackson got caught up in that for a minute. You know, all of all same with the record labels. But, but we have to understand, just like Channel Slavery was a business, so is the music business. It's a business, and people will cheat, do everything they possibly can to maximize their their bottom line. Barry Gordy, for example, but we know that that greed does not does not necessarily involve color line color lines. I mean, it's not just white folks who are greedy. Barry Gordy. I mean, if you talk, if you talk to uh, Lamont Dozier, wrote all those songs, and there was a little bit of a dispute with with, uh, with Lamont Dozier. And the Holland Brothers, working with with uh, 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 Barry Gordy, dealing with royalties. So, a lot of young artists who don't understand. why i would tell young people, man, when you go in, if you got a, if you get, if you're signed by a record label, you make sure you a, you hire an an, an, an an entertainment attorney to look at your contract, and make sure that you're not giving away your intellectual property in perpetuity.
0: Right, well, even speaking of, of Motown, right, Motown mostly had jazz musicians that made that sound, that gave Gary yes. Gordy that sound. Um, now, they were paid on a weekly basis, but look at what they did overall. Do you think they were exploited? Totally. <laughs> the yeah. Funk brothers, totally <laughs> brothers, They were totally,
1: because but they would do, you had a bunch of people who were amateurs, who really didn't know music, they didn't know theory, they didn't know much about writing. I mean, they can, they can write a little bit of a song. They bring a the song in, but it was the Funk Brothers who would often complete the song, give it structure, give it contour, fix the chord progression. Yeah. But they got no writing credit for it. Right. They got paid for the session.
0: Yeah, so let, let's switch gears for a minute to jazz education. Being an educator, you know, you have your Langston Hughes project. Why is it important? And what uh, and what can jazz teach us, um, uh, all Americans, black and white? Why is it mm-hmm. Why is it important for us to learn about this music? Well, part of for me, I I wouldn't call myself a jazz
1: educator. Even though I teach jazz, but I teach far more than that. Now, sure, I, I mm-hmm. teach life. Yeah, I teach history, and and uh, the older I get, the more I'm I'm aware of how jazz is just one small component of the whole african-american experience and you can't you can't begin to really fully understand jazz unless you understand politics social norms religion economics technology all of those variables play a very vital role in the furtherance of jazz when i teach when i teach my, my students first when i was at kansas my first job as a professor we didn't really have a jazz program per se. We had a jazz band, but we was building a program and we didn't have, you know, we didn't have separate arranging classes or improv classes. So I had to teach jazz arranging, composition, history, all within the context of a jazz ensemble rehearsal. So for example, if we were doing a piece by by Thad Jones or, or Count Basie or Duke Ellington, I would always teach not only the music, But what happened that surrounded the music, you know, so I would talk about, for example, in Kansas City, I would talk about what was happening politically, what was happening in in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s, what was happening and, and with, with the emergence of bebop, with Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, what was happening? In, you know, with, with with politics in the 1940s and 50s. So that way, the students can not only understand it, the intricacies of the music, but the context with which the music was was created. So when I think about jazz education, we we tend to uh, we tend to sort of isolate and just focus on the music, but music was more about life. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of all songs. Has something to do with how people were living. One of my favorite quotes is from a, uh, an ethnomusicologist by the name of Alan Lomax. Yes, mm-hmm. you, you might know that name. But he you know, he tra- traveled all over the country recording indigenous music, and he came to the conclusion that, and this was one of his phrases: "As we live, so do we sing. As we live, so do we sing." In other words, how politics and religion and so, Social economic norms, how how those how those variables impact our living impacts how we sing. So, I don't think you can teach jazz in a vacuum. I remember talking to Kenny Barron about this, he would always say one of his biggest concerns about some of our young artists today is that they tend to play with their heads and not with their hearts. In other words, they don't understand. I mean, they can talk about tritone substitutions and and, and all the asymmetrical linear lines and what have you. But they don't know where that stuff came from. They don't know why they're doing it. You know, I am reminded of another story uh I used to spend a lot of time with Billy Taylor. And Billy Taylor would talk about the story. He was he was Art Tatum's eyes when you know, Art Tatum was visually challenged. Mm-hmm. And he would he would be led around Harlem in New York by Billy Taylor in his young younger years. And he said one time they were playing at a club and this this English ethnomusicologist had transcribed one of uh Arcanum's solos. And he asked if he could play it for him. And Art wasn't really interested in him hearing it, but he said, the guy was persistent. He said, well, go ahead, play it. It was a piano. It was a tune called Ellergy. Uh, uh, was the name of the tune, I think it was. Very virtuosic piece. Well, the guy sits down and starts playing it. And about two minutes into it, Art gets up and walks away. <laughs> and Billy said, well, Art, I was kind of rude. Why'd you do that? He said, well, he played all the notes, but but it was clear to me he didn't know why I played those notes,
0: mm.
1: and that's deep. And, and And I think that that encapsulates a whole understanding of of how jazz education sometimes fail our will fail our students because they're playing all these tunes, but they don't know where these tunes came from yeah. or why they. You know, or why Clifford Brown played the way, the way he played? Or why did Charlie Parker play the way he played? That part has almost been whitewashed, for lack of a better term.
0: Well, do you think jazz history should be taught in our public school systems? Or at least included in the uh, American history curriculum?
1: Well, I think it should be included. I, mean, I, I, I think, and this ties into Black History Month. I'm hoping, which it probably won't happen in my lifetime, that we can eradicate Black History Month, and I'm saying that not so that because Black History is American history, but we know from in, in, when I was in high school, you talk about b- being optional. It, it didn't even exist when I was in high school. There was no Black History Month mm. <laughs> or Black History classes. Mm. You know, had not been for my parents, I wouldn't known anything about Black History because even even in an all-black school, there was very little uh, effort to teach about some of our Black heroes. Didn't talk about it. You know. Mm-hmm. So I think that what we need to do is is tell the whole story. And you know, most African Americans' history start with slavery. We know our history goes back thousands of years. But we don't talk about the fact that we come from kings and queens. We we we, we skip that part and go right to being in the belly of a of a slave ship coming over coming over as indigenous servants or slaves. That's that's part of our history. That's not all of our history. And so I think we have to we have to you know be more inclusive in terms of how we look at history, how we look at African American experience. That, that it, just, it didn't start at 1619.
0: Started way before then. Right, absolutely. So for a young person looking to play this music, looking to become a jazz musician, what what are the steps? How would you advise that person? Uh, a couple of things. I think
1: I just wrote a book on artist artist entrepreneurship and I talk about what I call the four essential traits for every artist, for every would be musician or artist. I should say, not even just jazz musician, but artist. a, your artistry should be at the highest professional level. That means you got to (laughs) practice. That means you got to, you got to do your homework, got to work at it every day. Secondly, everyone, should be involved in some degree of of pedagogy. In other words, you should be able to teach other people what you do. Thirdly, you should be able to create something. You should be able to, if you're in music, you should be able to compose. And then lastly, you should be some degree of an intellect. And this is where I think this may be one of, if not the most important of the four, because you are a citizen of the planet. You understand life. And I think the best composers are those people who are the most observant of how life operates. They observe people's, you know, patterns, how people exist, how people matriculate through life, and and they convert those life experiences into art. Now, if you don't, if you're not an intellect, and you don't, and, and you kind of just in a practice room where you sort of shut yourself off from the world, you're not going to have any stories to tell. So artistry at the highest level, pedagogue, where you're teaching other people what you do, composition, where you're creating something, and then lastly, you're curious about life. You go to museums, you go to libraries, you go to plays, you read Wall Street Journal, New York Times, you know, you're, 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 you're curious about what other people are doing. So if you have those four factors working for you, then I think you have a chance of really being successful. And also, you do it because that voice tells you to do it. You don't do it because it's going to make you rich and famous. I think a lot of people get caught up in that whole thing. And and artists that I know and love and respect, money, yeah, you want to make money because if if it's your livelihood. But if you're doing it just for
0: that reason, then you're probably doing it for the wrong reason. (laughs) Maybe investment banking. Well, yeah, well, is going to a university to study jazz, is that necessary? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, that's kind of weird that I would say
1: that being that I'm in the university. But I think uh, if you do choose to go to a university, I think that you, that you need to understand why you're going there and what you, and, 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 and have a clear understanding of what you hope to obtain from being there. What I've seen a lot of students get into a university, they get comfortable. You know what I mean? They, 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 they don't grow as fast because the sense of urgency is not there. I think universities also can zap all the creativity out of, out of students. And what I mean by that, think about it, and not just universities, the moment that a, that a kid gets involved in music programs in school, they are stripped of any engagement on the creative side. If you're playing in band, or choir, or orchestra, the director chooses the repertoire. The director rehearses the repertoire the director chooses the concert date does all the planning for the programs and posters and marketing all you do is show up and play or sing and that same cycle is repeated every four or five weeks so by the time you graduate from college you've not had any involvement on the creative side you play what people tell you you're gonna be basically you become a side man or side woman and then you graduate, and then you have no idea, well, man, what what, what, what do I have to say? And, and, and after I out what I'm going to say, how, how do I get people to show up? How, how do people know when to come to the concert hall when I was in high school and college? So I think in many ways, colleges have to be a little more the vanguard of doing less hand-holding, mentoring, but not making all the decisions. Because it's, it's like it's like having a child where where the child is pampered, you know, the mom washes his clothes and cooks all the meals and does everything. he sneezes, the mom there to wipe his nose. When you become a man, you have no idea how to live because you've been pampered the whole time. That happens, I think, in colleges way too much. And I and I've, I mean, there are some students who are certainly enterprising and they you know they form their own bands while they're in school. and Puppy would be a perfect example of that. While they were in school, they say, you know what, I'm fine being in the one o'clock band, but I want to form my own group. I want to play my music. And they struggled for a lot of years. Max had a whole bunch of credit cards until so they got the group up and running. Yeah. You know, but 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 that that that's more the exception than the rule. More students are, are are more comfortable being told what to do and not taking those chances, not creating not being the one not being in the vanguard of their own careers
0: wow well with that being said are you optimistic about the future of this music jazz and the musicians that are coming oh, out now are you optimistic optimistic or are you concerned
1: oh i'm optimistic because you know what there i mean we have more musicians now playing at a high level than ever in the history of this music and for those who want to play they will. They will learn to play, and they will get their art out there, despite the odds. Despite the, uh, higher education not doing its job, they'll figure it out. They will, and they have, and they'll continue to do so. I, my, my only concern is, like I said, you know, if you if you go spend that kind of money to go to a school, the school should be more attuned to what's happening in the real world.
0: So are you basically saying that um, a lot of the schools are not preparing these musicians for life? Is, is that what you're saying? In many ways, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, but I think what happens, uh, curriculums evolve at a, at a glacier pace in, in higher education. I mean, it almost takes an act of Congress to change a curriculum. Why is we that? Just bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, to add a new class, or to change the curriculum. I mean, it it, it takes a lot of paperwork and a lot of twisting of arms for for that to happen. And consequently, we tend to teach the way we taught. I mean, most universities still embrace kind of a a 19th century teaching pedagogical stance. You know, you got to have two years of music theory and you got to have sight singing and keyboard harmony and you got to take two years of European music history that, most schools still do that and that, it's been that way for 200 years okay. <laughs> you know Good that point. had changed and I mean there's, there's a new term we call called uh, uh, decolonizing of curriculums most curriculums are very Eurocentric in scope it's going to be about Brahms, Beethoven, Berlioz, Stravinsky not Ellington not Calloway not William Grant scale it's going to be about white European composers an artist, mm-hmm. and so we live in a multicultural society now, and you know it's 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 kind of like what 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 caused the folks to storm the, the 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 Capitol building last month. They're recognizing that they're not going to be in the majority. It's about clinging to power. So those who are in power are not so quick to give up teaching Brahms and Berlioz and Beethoven. I argue that's great music too. We not no one's advocating getting rid of it. But, but, it's, but it's about casting a much wider net. So so when you talk about Beethoven, when I talk about William Grant Still, when I talk about uh, 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 Margaret Bonds, Adolphus Hale store right Hale Smith, that music is just as good too. Uh, Harry T. Burleigh. When I talk about those other African American composers who are also making significant contributions to the canon, but when you have that kind of uh colonized approach to your curriculum, it reflects white supremacy. That our culture, meaning the white culture, is the only one that matters.
0: Right, so and, what- and, and those names that you mentioned, I only know those names because I happened to take a class. I started out in my college education. I started out at HBCU. I took a class uh, called The Music of Black Americans and we use Eileen Southern's book. Uh-huh. The, the, the music of Black Americans, that's the only reason why those names that you mentioned, that I know many of those names. Otherwise, I never would have heard those names.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're dealing with right now. But, but I think it always it goes back to the pink elephant in the room, race. <laughs> that has been the pink elephant in our lives for 200 years. 400 years, man, we, we, and we're still dealing with it. There's and we can't give up. We can't. We can't give up. We have to keep. We have to keep engaged. We have to keep educating people, man. For me, that's the way. That's the only way we're going to get beyond this. And okay. I, I have, I have in my, in my, uh, in my tag on my all my emails, quote by Benjamin Franklin, and the quote is, "Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are just as outraged as those who are." <laughs> in other words, white people when white folks become as engaged as enraged about what's happening in our society change will not happen you know we we saw a little bit of that when george floyd was murdered we saw how diverse those who were who were protesting black white people of all different ethnic ethnic backgrounds were out protesting to what happened to george floyd and others so until that happens until educators both black and white have become more involved then uh
0: things won't change well dr mccurdy i appreciate you coming on the thinking sheet podcast i appreciate you dropping all that wonderful knowledge you certainly have given us a lot to think about with jazz jazz is really not just music so much more than an art form it is american history and deeper than that it is black american history and it speaks to race it speaks to the black struggle It speaks to the American struggle. We thank you for sharing those insights.
1: Well, I I enjoy talking about this tonight. Like I said, my my mission in life at this point is to educate people and hopefully people will be inspired to, to read more rather than getting their information from hearsay. Really do the work, do the, put in the time. Do you be your own investigative reporter? And that way you can formulate your own opinions about things, but thank you for this opportunity and I bless
0: you for doing what you're doing, man. I appreciate this very much. Thank you, my friend. And God bless you. You have been listening to the thinking Sheep podcast. And today's guest was Dr. Ron McCurdy. Dr. McCurdy is professor of music at the university of Southern California's Thornton school of music, where he served as chair of the jazz studies department for six years. He is also the former director of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. Dr. McCurdy is also the creator and director of the Langston Hughes Project, a multimedia concert performance of Langston Hughes' kaleidoscopic jazz poem suite entitled Ask Your Mama, 12 Moods for Jazz. You can learn more about Ron McCurdy and the Langston Hughes Project by visiting online at langstonhughes project.org. That's L-A-N-G-S-T-O-N-H-U-G-H-E-S P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot org. Langstonhesproject.org. Join us again in a few weeks for another exciting guest. thinking Sheep Podcast. Think as you need. Think harder as you follow, as you follow.